morning. I'd like to read a section from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 18, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, You don't have to turn to the passage if you don't want to. You can listen quietly. But as you listen, I would like for you to use your imagination to try to picture in your mind what I'm reading. God has given us a wonderful image-making factor that we can use from time to time. Our minds are really not lecture halls. They're more like uh, picture galleries. And uh, God gives us these wonderful images that we can, we can place on the walls of our, of our minds. So as I read this passage, I would like for you to picture what, uh, what is described here in the text. If you want to follow along, it's Jeremiah 18, the first four verses. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as as it seemed best to him. God is the master of the metaphor. Uh, metaphors, similes, illustrations, pictures, uh, images, these things are the bridge between the unseen world of the spirit and the world that, that we see. God knows how our minds work. He knows that we don't really think in words, we think in pictures. It's true of all of us. I used to think that was just true of me, but as, I, as I've talked to others, I've discovered that everyone thinks that way. God made our minds that way. And uh, he gives us these wonderful images in the Bible that, uh, that penetrate because they move our, our emotions. And it's necessary to trigger our emotion in order to move our, our will. M- mere words won't uh, do that. God gave Jeremiah some wonderful metaphors. So on one occasion, he was told to, to go buy a linen girdle that had not yet been washed. Now, unwashed linen is very stiff and uncomfortable. And he was told to strap that apparatus on and walk all the way to the Euphrates from Jerusalem. Now, that's about the distance from Boise to Portland with uh, this uh, stiff, uh, uncomfortable kilt uh, on. be like wearing cardboard shorts. Very, very uncomfortable. And when he got to uh, Babylon, he was supposed to bury it in the mud, take it off and bury it in the mud and and then uh, leave it there for a few days and come back and dig it up. He didn't say much about it, but uh, the picture is very vivid. It's a description of the Babylonian captivity and the, and the pain and discomfort of that journey to Babylon. And, and uh, then the, the spoiled garment, which uh, then becomes soft and, and much more comfortable as a result of, 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 it, of, its, uh, of the difficulties that it experiences. On another occasion, Jeremiah was told to to make a yoke out of wood. So he gets out his his adze and carving tools, and he makes this huge wooden yoke, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he goes walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. And uh, walks right into Zedekiah's court. Zedekiah had gathered around him the kings of a number of of the great nations of that day, and they were conspiring against the Babylonians who were going to overthrow the Babylonian yoke. And 
And Jeremiah was trying to say, no, wear the yoke, submit to the yoke that God has given to you. And there was one uh, false prophet there whose name was Hananiah, and he went over and pulled the yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders and got his axe and chopped it up into splinters. And He said, no, God has told me that within two years we're going to be delivered. Jeremiah had been saying it was 70 years. Hananiah says, no, it's two. Jeremiah says, well, okay. So he goes home and makes himself an iron yoke and brings it back. So you don't have to say much when you have an image like that penetrates our our minds. Now here's another one. Here's another one of these wonderful metaphors. And I I doubt having seen this metaphor that you'll ever forget it. Now Jeremiah was told to go down to the potter's shed where he would receive a, a message from the Lord. So he made his way through the streets of Jerusalem out through a little gate in the southeast corner of the wall, down to the the valley of Hinnom, which is a little valley on the south end of the city of David. That's where all the craftsmen set up shop. And uh, he found the potter's shed. And there was a potter working at his his wheel. Now, a lot of things have changed in the 2,500 years since Jeremiah's day, but uh, throwing a pot uh, is is done almost exactly the same way as, as, it, as it was then. In fact, nothing's changed really for about 5,000 years. I have a little pot from Abraham's time. It's about 4,000 years old, and it looks like all these other pots that are distributed here. It was turned on a, it was turned on a wheel. What the potter did was that he, uh, he sat down at this uh, contraption that was made of two wheels. As a matter of fact, the text says... The potter was working at his wheels. And uh, in Hebrew, you actually have three numbers, singular, plural, and dual. This happens to be dual. The idea is uh, there were two wheels there. There was the top wheel made out of stone uh, on which the pot was actually centered and and thrown. Uh, Underneath, connected by a wooden axis, was another wheel, a very heavy stone wheel that acted as both a kick wheel uh, propelled by the feet of the potter and also a flywheel, which kept kept the uh, turntable at the top revolving. Same, uh, same procedure is followed today. Uh, then there was clay, and uh, clay hasn't changed uh, in the 2,500 years since Jeremiah's day. It's just a sticky, moist mixture of sand and mud that someone dug out of the out of a riverbank. And uh, then there's the potter. who conceived an idea in his mind and, and he worked it out through his hands. The idea was translated through his hands into the, into the material in front of him. And he shaped uh, a vase according to the dream, the, the intent that, that he had. Now, that's what Jeremiah saw as potter was working away at, at his craft. He, he saw the potter reach over, take a piece of clay, uh, knead it, roll it to get the air bubbles out, and probe it to get the sticks and rocks and foreign objects out of the, uh, out of the raw material. Prepare it for the wheel, and he places it on the wheel, and he begins to shape it, narrowing it, enlarging it, working within, working without, till the base uh, began to form. And finally, it was, it was ready. He tweaked it a little bit here and there, and and made it exactly like he wanted it to be. And uh, he was turning to, to place it on a shelf to prepare it for the kiln when, when it fell all into pieces on the wheel. 
So, uh, instead of discarding the material, which you would expect, the potter gathers it up again. He begins to knead it and roll it and prepare it, and he puts it back on the wheel, and, and he recasts it into another shape, perhaps not the original shape, but one that's just as beautiful as the shape he originally envisioned. Now, the text indicates, uh, it's not clear from the English translations, but the text itself indicates that this happened over and over and over again. He had to remake the vase a a number of times until it was finally cast in its final form and was ready for the the firing. Now, that's uh, that's the word from the Lord. That's the metaphor. Jeremiah was to go down. He was to see uh, what he saw in the potter's, potter's shed. Now, the problem with a good metaphor is that if you try to explain it, you explain it away. It's almost like a joke. You know, when you try to explain that to someone, you ruin it. And, and, and I'm in danger of doing that today. Now, what I ought to do is just read the passage to you until you go home and think about it. But we have about 20 minutes left, and we have to do something with it. So I'm going to explain it. At, at the risk of trivializing it, really, because words never are never quite enough. You have to see it in your mind. Think about it. See, these, these metaphors have a long fuse. And you think about them, and all of a sudden they explode in your mind, and you think, ah, that's what it's all about. See, that's why Jesus told parables and didn't explain them. He told these odd stories, and he'd walk away, and people would ponder them, and they'd say, oh, he's talking about me. Well, that's... That's what a good metaphor does. But uh, at the risk of, uh, of ruining the picture in your mind, I'm going to try to uh, try to explain it. Now, uh, obviously, we're the clay. Uh, clay is common material, a little sand, a little bit of little dirt, a little mud dug out of, out of a riverbank. Uh, clay is a very common metaphor for uh, humanity. In both the Old and New Testament, Jeremiah used, Isaiah uses it five times. Jeremiah uses it both here and in, in his book. We call Jeremiah and also the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Zedekiah uses the same uh, simile, as does Paul, as you know, in the book of Romans. God is the potter, we are the clay. Doesn't the potter have the right to do as he pleases with the clay? That, that, that very difficult but magnificent pas- passage on the sovereignty of, of God in, in the book of Romans. So we're the clay. Um, it's a very appropriate symbol, you know. It, it, I, I'm often commented on the fact that if, if you were to squeeze all the space between the molecules in us and squish us down real tight, uh, we'd be about, you know, we'd be a, a, a bit of heavy mud about the size of a golf ball and not worth much more. That's what we are. We're just, we're just clay. Uh, as Martin Luther says, I am dust and ashes and, and full of sin. Take all the moisture out, that's all we are. We're just dirt, a little bit of dust. I always think of the story of a little boy who heard that we were created out of dust and uh, looked under his bed one day, ran screaming through his room to his mother and said, Mommy, there's a man under my bed, but I can't tell whether he's coming or going. <laughs> that's all we are. We're just dust and ashes. There's nothing good about us but God. He's the only thing that gives us any any worth. He's the one who gives us our minds, our emotions, our wills, what athletic ability you have. You know, think of athletes like Dennis Rodman and others who are so remarkably gifted and who never give God the time of day, who never think that all that ability stems from, 
from God working, you know, even within the non-Christian. There's this common, uh, uh, theologians describe it as common grace, God giving wonderful things to people who never think to thank Him. As David says, by my God, I leaped over a wall. By my God, I ran through a troop. So he knew the source of his majesty. But apart from God, we're just just clay, just, just mud, dust, and, and ashes. But we're the stuff that God has to work with. See, and the wonderful thing is that he, he loves the clod. See, how odd, you know, the poem, how odd of God to... Uh, uh, to 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 choose the the clod that he that he made from the sod, how odd of God! He loves us just as we are. Now, uh, no metaphor is perfect; it always has holes in it. And of course, clay is inert, and we're not. We can choose. We can either choose to put ourselves in God's hands, or we can choose not to. Tennyson said, "Our wills are ours to make them thine." Our wills are given to us. We're free to choose God or we're we're free to turn our backs on Him. And unlike the clay, we can put ourselves at God's disposal. All right, we're the clay. And there are a lot of of correspondences. you, You do well this week to just think about some of the parallels between the raw material which God has to work, to work with and the clay, which is part of the, part of the illustration here. God is the potter. And again, that's a common designation in the Old Testament. Isaiah says, God is the potter, and we are the clay. And God cannot wait to get his hands on you. See, that's the wonderful thing. He takes that, that bit of clay out of, out of the bank, and, 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 and he's just poised, ready to go to work on it. Now, you have to understand, uh, Throwing a pot is not a hobby with God. It's his work. That's what he's about. See, Jesus said, I work and my Father works. Well, what does God do? What is his occupation? His work is to make us into men and women of grace and beauty. He wants to take this common material and make something out of it. When God gets his hands on us, he means something. Uh, David says a wonderful thing in Psalm 139. He's describing his prenatal existence, what he was like before he was born, and God crafting this body and shaping it and putting all the pieces together. And and it's as though he has a blueprint that he's following. And uh, the ankle bone fits on this bone. He's putting the body together. And then he says, when I think about God's aspirations for me, they're greater than I can count. And the word that he uses... For thoughts or aspirations is the word for dreams. You know, that, you know what God dreams for you and me? Do you know what his intentions are? What he wants more than anything else is to make us just like his son. To reflect the, the character and the beauty of our Lord Jesus. Now understand, he wants to make you a unique representation of Jesus. You know, not just clones. You're special. There's nobody like you in the world. And God wants to make that unique personality into a perfect reflection of the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not, uh, you know, he's not stamping out uh, cookies. He's not mass-producing Ken and Barbie dolls. He's making unique beings 
that, that reflect in a very special way the beauty of, of our Lord Jesus. Ray Stebbins used to describe it like a Christmas tree uh, light, you know, all the colors in the rainbow, the same power that energizes, energizes each one, but, but all, 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 all conceivable colors, an infinite number of colors uh, reflected. Now, that's his, that's his dream. He's a God of infinite creati- creativity. No two clouds are alike. No two trees are alike. No two snowflakes are alike. No two people are alike. But what he wants is for you to display the, display the beauty of his son. And you read through that list in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, self-control. That's what he wants for me and you. James says, the wisdom that's from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and full of mercy and, and good fruits. Easy to be entreated. It's not defensive. It's easy to be around. It's mellow. It uses, a, as I've pointed out, a word for old wine. It's not sharp and acerbic. It's gentle. Mellow. And he says, people like that leave behind a harvest of righteousness wherever they go. They touch lives profoundly. And that's what God is dreaming about. Throughout eternity, he's been been longing and thinking about that uh, for you and me. So we're the clay, and God is the potter. Well, what in the world is the wheel? Well, the wheel represents the circumstances of life that bring us into the, into the potter's hand. The wheel is under the control of the potter. Nothing happens to us that's not screened through God's wisdom and, and His love. But, but He permits circumstances to be to bear upon our lives that bring us into, into his hands so he can shape us and make us what he intends us to be. Now, sometimes that's some of the harsh realities of life, the really difficult things that we have to, have to experience. Uh, I've been reading Stephen Ambrose's uh, book on D-Day. It's a fascinating book, but he just mentions his heart breaking experience this woman had of receiving three telegrams on the same day telling her that her three sons had all been killed on the beaches of, of Normandy. One, one, one after another, those telegrams came. What a crushing experience. Sometimes uh, life treats us that violently. Other times it's just the, just the routine of life, you know, the making and selling of widgets, the uh, you know, housekeeping and Washing dishes, and dusting, and taking care of, of little ones. It's the routine of life that, that wears us down, the endless revolutions, the day after day after day uh, of duty. Hey, Carolyn and I just spent a week with our grandkids over in the Seattle area, and uh, Brian and Jill took off for a few days uh, uh, to get some much-needed rest, and some time together, and we volunteered to babysit for the kids, six, four, and two. And I haven't been around a two-year-old for 25 years. And uh, I'm telling you, I, I understand God's wisdom in giving little ones to young people. It, it, it is wearing. Uh, J.D., who's two, the, the kids were all lying on the floor watching, I don't know, Lion King or something. We were all sprawled around with them on the floor and on the couches, and we were watching and. 
And uh, J.D. says, uh, cover me, Papa. He has this blankie, you know, that he carries everywhere. And so I get up off my sofa and I cover him up, you know. And you know what a two-year-old is like. He'd, he was there about 30 seconds and he was up running around the house. And he lays back down. He says, cover me, Papa. And so I cover him up. This went on, you know, six, seven, eight, ten times. And by this time, you know, I was fit to be tied. Carolyn saying, calm down, Papa. Calm down. <laughs> but I tell you, I gained a whole new appreciation for mothers. See. And the routine... And, and the stress and the difficulty of, of, of just being a mom and, and taking care of children or being a dad, uh, providing for a, for a family. See, those are, that's the wheel. That's what uh, Browning called this dance of plastic circumstance you know, that, that brings us into the hands of the Father. Now, uh, the wheel and, and the hand work together. The circumstances supply the occasion for manifesting a specific grace. And the hands supply the grace to be manifested. You understand what I'm saying? The, the, the circumstances of life provide the occasion. Is this rain? <laughs> I think it's rain. I hope it's rain. <laughs> the circumstances provide the occasion. Uh, that, that bring us into the in, 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 no the circumstances provide the occasion for making manifest a specific grace patience love kindness generosity whatever it is all right and they bring us into the hands of the potter who makes it possible for us to manifest that grace we cannot do it ourselves the, the potter has to has to shape us and you see this is what James is talking about. I have read and taught the first chapter of James I don't know how many times until I finally realized what James was saying here. About a week ago, I was sitting in a a class that that, uh, Doug Gamble was teaching, just doing a marvelous job of working his way through James 1. You know, one of the curses of being a teacher is that your mind tends to go off on rabbit trails. And, And while he was teaching, I was actually, he emphasized a couple of lines that I'd never, never put together before. He said, you James puts it this way. He says, consider it pure joy. Cheer up, folks, he says, when you face trials of many kinds, of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And it was it was those two lines uh, that 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 suffering, trials, struggles, difficulties in life make us more mature, make us into a whole person, lacking nothing. But he says, if you lack anything, ask of God. And it was the juxtaposition of those those two thoughts that that finally hit me: lacking nothing. But if I lack, he's backing off. No, he's not. He's telling us how. We get what we need in order to be mature. Now, you have to understand that James is thinking in terms of Old Testament categories. And for him, wisdom is not, is not uh, uh, the way we think about life. It's the way we live. See, what James says in chapter three, the, four, the, uh, 3, the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, full of mercy, good good. Good fruit. He's talking to teachers there. He says, don't many of you become teachers? Augustine said, that's a verse that scares me a great deal. It scares me too. But he's not talking about 
people who inadvertently uh, are mistaken in their teaching. He's talking about people who falsify truth. And then he says there's a greater condemnation. And then he goes on to talk about the, the, what true wisdom is. He says, now who of you are wise? And all the teachers stand up and they say, we are. James says, okay, let me see it in your life. Let me see it in your life. And we all say, well, where do we get that wisdom? And James says the wisdom comes from above. It's first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then full of mercy. And now, now read that back into James 1. James says that, that stress, difficulty, the, 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 the whirl of plastic circumstance, the, the wheel itself takes us to the end of ourself and demands that we, that we respond in a certain way with, with, with kindness, with courage, with peace, with love, with joy. With long suffering, whatever is demanded, it, it brings about a certain demand. And, 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 and we say to ourselves, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so we put ourselves in the hand of the potter and we ask for wisdom. You understand what he says? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God, give me patience. God, make me pure. God, make me thoughtful. God, make me sensitive, you see. And that, you see how it works? The circumstances bring us into the hands of the potter so he can begin to make us what God has intended that we shall be. Now, this is not the end of the metaphor. As you go back and think through what you saw in your mind. Jeremiah saw the potter take the little lump of clay and begin to work it and he made it into a vase. And, and, and he, he stretched it a little bit here and he warped it a little bit here and and he, and, and, he, and he made it exactly like he wanted it to be. And then he set it aside and the thing fell apart. What did he do? Discard it? Sweep it away? No, he gathered up the pieces, the same pieces of material, and he began to remake the vase. Got his hands back on it again. God does not cast us away. No matter how bad we muff it, he does not cast us away. If we're willing, he'll begin anew. He'll reshape us, forming us again, as it seems best to him. Sin and failure never disqualify us. In and of themselves, they do not take us out of the Father's hands. He can take what remains of our life and make it better than ever before. That's the amazing thing about God is that even sin can be used to make us better than we ever were before. If he can't do what he intended to do with us at first, he'll make something better. That's his way, Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. He will in time sanctify you through and through. Faithful is God who's called you, and he'll do it. He'll do it. It doesn't make any difference how badly you've ruined your life. God can scrape together the pieces of that life and make again a vessel of grace and beauty fit for the master's use. So what's the way back? Well, we must confess that we've marred the vessel. That's what repentance is. Look at the shattered remnants of our life and say we've ruined ourselves. And then put ourselves back into God's hands. Simply yield to him so he can get his hands on us. And it occurred to me while I was thinking about this figure is that those are good hands. They're nail-scarred hands. Tender. You understand suffering. And he will begin again to make us into a vessel that uh, is fit for his use. Our task is to yield ourselves before him and then wait for him. 
sit at his feet and wait until he lets you know the next thing that you need to do. You know what? He makes quantum leaps in, in the spiritual life. It's little by little. And what we must do is put ourselves back on the table and in God's hands and, and ask him to begin to shape us again. And as we sit at his feet and read his word and we open our hearts to him, he'll let you know what the next step is. It may be to call someone up and ask forgiveness. It may be to make restitution in some way. It may be to deal with impurity of heart. Whatever it is, God will let you know. And as you do the next thing, then he'll let you know the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And the wonderful thing is that he'll give you the grace to do it. Now, now, what of those who don't want to yield? You know, I know a lot of, I uh, work with men mostly, and I know a lot of men who don't want to yield. And they, they come to me and say, you know, I'm really not interested in, in God getting my hands on me right now. And, and my common response is to say, well, uh, go ahead as long as you can. Uh, as long as you can stand it, go ahead. Uh, I want you to know God is near. You know, he, his hands are poised. He, he's just waiting to get his hands on you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He hasn't abandoned you. Just just go as long as you can stand it. In my experience, what usually happens is that the wheel begins to turn. Their wife begins to withdraw. And she says, I, I can't take this anymore. I'm out of here. And their marriage falls apart. Or they get fired or the doctor gives them the bad news that they've got a heart condition. Or something begins to happen. The circumstances of life. That whirl of plastic circumstance begins to push them into the hands of the potter. And he's standing there, just waiting to get his hands on them and make them what he has dreamed that they will be. As Paul puts it, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Fit to bear the potter's seal. Now here's one nice thing. That firing doesn't take place until the end of your life. Our character is plastic to the very, the very end. When we go home to be with our Lord, then our character is fixed. But until death, or until our Lord comes back, the material is flexible, plastic, and if we put ourselves in God's hands, He can begin to go to work to make us into a vessel that's honorable and fit for the master's use. Now, if you go to Israel today and you go to some of the pot shops around and look at some of the ancient uh, pottery, and you turn them upside down and look on the bottom, particularly in, uh, in, the, in the Greco-Roman world, you'll see inscribed on the bottom of pots that have been fired and finished uh, the Greek characters, dakimas. That's like our good housekeeping seal of approval. When it, whenever a, a vessel... Uh, had been finished and it was ready for the firing, they, uh, a potter would write across the bottom, Dakimas. It means approved. Approved. And then it would be fired. And that would be my prayer for you and me, that when we come to the end of our life, that God will write Dakimas across our life. Let's pray. Lord, what a, what a vivid... What a vivid symbol. Uh, one that's uh, impossible, really, to dislodge from our minds, and one with so much significance as we go from this place, Lord. Our prayer would be that you would implant this truth upon our hearts. You are the potter. We are the clay. And our prayer would be mold us, make us, 
into what you have determined we shall be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.